somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 33 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Thank you to everybody who's contacted me one way or another over the past few months to say how much they're enjoying the stories and to ask for more. Um, We will certainly be getting some more episodes out to you in the the coming months. Uh, But keep the feedback coming. That's great. You can visit bordersofsleep.com for more information. Artwork is by Robin Trainer. Production by Tim Wiles. And the soundtrack for this week's episode is from Legends Mist by Kurosh Dini and The Once and Future Harp by Cheryl Ann Fulton. And those are available from magnitude.com. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Thrice Buried by Seymour Jacklin Malleus woke up cold in the hour before dawn. Cold because the sheets against his skin were slightly damp and an unnamed sense of dread was feeding on him from within. He didn't move. That would only disturb the grey air, but he stared into the gloom where a grainy light was dispersed through the unshuttered window. The outline of a hearth yawned in the wall, bearing the black teeth of a fire grate and a tongue of ashes. There would probably be a little heat buried in those ashes if he could just stir himself to go and rake them up. But he didn't. He kept perfectly still. He hoped that sleep might steal over him again. He was a long way from home. At home he'd be able to hear birds singing up the sun by now, and his own dear Irene would be breathing next to him, and the ash in the hearth would be of sweet pine and not bitter elm. Malleus' first thoughts began to form. The dawn was bringing no hope. It would be another day at court. Another day of standing idle and shuffling in the shadows of the audience chamber, whether King Fuselus made an appearance or not. He was obliged to attend for part of the year, as if the king enjoyed calling his nobles from their fields and forests to the dark and barely beating heart of his kingdom, so they could suffer with him in his illness. In former times there had been business to attend to, plenty of good food, wine and cheer, always a bustle and a clatter, gossip, intrigue and matters of state to debate. But when Fuselus had fallen ill, he dragged the court with him into despair, and the city followed, and the rot spread to the surrounding land until only the farthest reaches of his rule were able to stay free from the pallid cast of his soul. Malleus' own lands lay on the very border with the kingdom of King Idos, Tristhamana, the thrice-buried, a forbidden place for all of Fuselus' subjects. 
The trouble seemed to have begun ten years before this day, almost to the day, a late February day, when the most primal energies of Earth were stirring from winter's petrification, but had not yet taken the new forms of the coming year. The current of resurrection had begun to flow in the soil, but it had not yet snagged upon the seeds of plants and rocks, or cut channels for itself to draw back to. The ambassador of King Ados' realm came to the court, with a snowdrop in his buttonhole. He came with warm greetings from Ados Tristamina, and hoped to open up new routes for trade between the kingdoms. Fuselus fell ill about this time, though whether first in mind or body nobody can tell, although one surely followed the other. Some say the king caught a common cold from the ambassador, and then became convinced that he was sick unto death, such that his fear of dying quite overtook his capacity to live. Others believe the ambassador boasted too much of the glories and powers of Ados, and that Fuselus became despondent within himself, and neglected to eat or make use of any means of grace such that his body began to waste. However it came about, the king blamed Ados and his envoy, and the very heir of his neighbour's kingdom. The ambassador was put in a dungeon, Soldiers were sent to close the borders, and heralds dispatched to declare that traffic of any sort with the land, subjects, or person of King Ados Tristamina, the thrice-buried, was to be considered treason. Malleus escaped back down through the halls of his memory as he lay in the ashen morning unlight. He remembered his king as a young man, when they'd hunted together with others and sat up late in the deep woods, idly throwing twigs on a fire and passing the same cup from hand to hand. His king was well-named Fuselus, for in the molten light of a roaring fire he always seemed to become larger than the sum of all of them. His eyes glowed with laughter and men loved him. They loved him still. And the wound that festered upon every one of his noblemen was the pain of seeing their beloved king so wasted and hollow. As the hope of finding a cure had faded, and the coffers of the palace had been emptied for tinctures and exotic powders, a few had begun to wait for the king's death. Malleus found himself infected with the king's lassitude whenever he came to court, and he always mounted his horse to ride home like a broken man at the end of the month. The courtroom smelt of damp wool and sweat from the stale cushions stacked upon Fuselus' throne. It was rather like a crypt, dark, a forest of silent pillars forcing open the space between the floor and ceiling. Noblemen and ladies huddled and shuffled between them, speaking in low voices. There was nowhere for them to sit. Fuselus was cramped up on his throne, leaning over an ancient book he had open on his wasted knees and staring at the ground in front of him at a few scattered brown pieces of bone. The sound of his breathing rasped across the chamber like the panting of a beast in the recesses of a cave. He wore his robes, filthy and faded like drab sacking, and his yellowed hair and beard was plastered to his chest and shoulders with grime. Fuselus squinted at the book on his knees, and then back at the bones on the floor. Then he lifted his shaggy head with a sickly effort, and let his eyes rove around the room. His courtiers avoided the look. 
With surprising energy, he held up one of his hands, palm upwards as if begging, and called one of the younger nobles over to come and stand in front of him. Malleus moved in shadow until he stood behind a pillar just a few paces off to the side of the throne, where he could see the youth's face. It was Salia's boy. His father kept lands adjoining those of Malleus, out at the edge of Fuselus' realm, and also bounded by the thick forest that grew on the northern border of Tristamina's country. The lad tried to keep his eyes from staring at the king. He was perhaps having his first audience at the throne, having been sent on behalf of Salia to discharge his father's courtly obligations. Come to my side, Fuselus rasped. The lad obeyed, and Fuselus directed him to look at the array of bones on the floor. Mark these, said Fuselus. The boy went down on one knee and leant over. Now tell me if you think they... Fall thus, said Fuselus. He pointed to a page of the book with a grey finger, flecked and knuckled like a dead ash twig. The boy followed the finger with his eyes. Again, with a kind of desperate, grasping energy, Fuselus grabbed the boy's shoulder and pulled him closer, almost knocking him off balance. What do you see? Is it thus, or do they seem to lie more in this way? He demanded, pointing to another diagram in the book. He left his hand on the boy's shoulder, catching his collar in his fingernails. Malleus gasped, for where the king had clawed at the outer garment, it had slipped and shown a half-moon of the tunic underneath. It was a rich scarlet, a rare flame of colour in the grey surroundings. Malleus recognised the fabric. Its ribbed weave and vermilion dye came from the forbidden kingdom of Tristamina, to wear it at all let alone in the king's presence, was as good as treason. The king's hand rested on the exposed fabric. Malleus held his breath. No one else seemed to be standing where they'd be able to see what he saw. Was this some kind of signal to a cabal of conspirators, waiting to throw off their cloaks and end fuselless reign in a vortex of crimson? Was the boy a spy or just a fool? The next moments would decide... I think it is more like this, sire, said the boy, clearly, pointing at the page. Although this knuckle lies in the third circle and not in the second. Fah, said the king, and loosed his claw from the boy's shoulder. He began feverishly turning the pages of the book. He seemed not to have noticed the offending tunic. Fuselus had become fixated on discovering the hour of his death in recent years until it seemed that the only thing that kept him alive was the pursuit of one form of divination after another. Each method seemed to answer him differently from the last, if at all, and led him deeper into confusion. He wouldn't trust himself to anyone more advanced in the seeing arts, and insisted on teaching himself from books. "'Where's my astrologer?' the king spluttered suddenly. He gazed around the room again with a tyrannical glare. There was an uneasy movement among the courtiers until an upright figure with a snow capping of white hair, lean and clean-shaven, presented himself. He stood as straight as a pillar, a physical representation of all that the double-over, unkempt King Fuselus was not. He only made a nod in place of a bow. 
Everyone seemed to have become less careful of observing the formalities since Malleus's last visit. It was weariness, perhaps, that had prevented them from being practised or enforced, but it only added to Malleus' suspicion that a conspiracy was afoot. Your Majesty, you sent the astrologer to take some measurements from the southern lakes. He's not likely to return for several days. The king's astrologer had become nothing more than an errand boy, fetching him the books he asked for and compiling tables of observations for the king to cross-check and scribble upon. Then, who can tell me at this hour where stands the moon in the sky? said Fusilus. I must know! Again a ripple of uneasiness passed through the courtiers, but nobody spoke up. Fusilus looked at Salia's boy, who was still on one knee at his side. What's your name? he demanded. It's Solomus, sire, said the boy. I point you as deputy court astrologer. Go and find for me the exact degree of declension of the moon at this very hour. Solomus stood and backed away from the throne. The courtiers parted and closed after him as he made for the door of the chamber. Malleus hurried around the altar wall to catch up with the boy as he went out. Where did you get that tunic? he asked, matching the boy's stride. One of our weavers wove it, said Solomus. You should know better than to wear it at court, said Malleus. They had reached the foot of a staircase. Solomus stopped and looked at him. I wear it for my king's sake, he said. The sacred vermilion of Tristamina is our only hope. Shh, don't speak here, said Malleus. Let's go up onto the walls. They climbed the stairs in silence and presently stood under a sterile grey sky, looking out at the wasted land to the north of Fusilus' stronghold. The castle stood as if it had turned its back on the north and opened the arms of its walls to circle the city to the south. He touched it, the tunic, said Malleus. And he didn't even notice, said Solomus. His fevers have blinded him. He can see nothing but his bones and his charts. Even if Tristamina himself were to come to him, I doubt he would but cough and splutter and tell the stranger to leave him alone. You're speaking treason, said Malleus. How do you know I won't drag you back down there to be judged? Solomus turned to face the south. If the moon was up there, it was behind the pewter ceiling of the clouds. He said, I don't know. But that would be the action of one who hates his king and loves his illness and would keep him imprisoned. The boy's voice rose in anger. The dungeons are full, he declared. But Fusilus has worn himself out, filling them, and so imprisoned himself. He's so far gone that he may as well be occupying one of those cells himself. But can't you see how the evil in him is sure to find him less useful to its ends? It's gutted and hollowed him and it'll move on soon enough, leaving him dead. This sickness is treason. He's entertained it against himself. We must act while he still has breath, but not the strength to resist. Act not to speed his death, but to blow on the ashes of his life so that he can be fuselless again. Malleus was stunned at the boy's boldness and wisdom. How? he asked, remembering the dead embers in his fire grate that morning. Solomus looked north again. The soil of that land is potent, he said. Malleus was disappointed. 
it was a legend, an old wives' tale, that the soil in the kingdom of Tristamina had special qualities, that it produced crops like no other, that a staff struck into it would soon sprout, and even more fancifully, that a doll buried in it would come to life, and that anyone strong enough could pass a night covered in it and add fifty years to their life. Indeed, it was put about that Tristamana, the thrice buried, had passed three times through the grave, and thus gained immortality, rising the third time with his mouth filled with the red dust, the sacred vermilion that became the dye of his livery. Such rubbish. "'You've been deceived,' said Malleus. "'I thought you were wise, but now I see your head has been filled with nonsense.' "'I've seen it with my own eyes,' said Solomus defiantly. He looked at the horizon as if he were watching the miracle at that very moment. Then he said, "'There's someone coming.' On the plain below, a tiny figure had appeared, about two miles off. It was moving rapidly, too far away for the movement of its legs to be detected so that it seemed to be skimming over the land. Malleus dropped the boy's astounding confession from his mind for a moment as they watched the figure. It was unusual for anyone to approach the city on foot, particularly from the north, where there was a day's ride of dusty scrubland, hard frozen in winter and hard baked in summer, populated only by wandering shepherds and their scrawny flocks. We'll have a better view from the observatory, Solomus suggested. They would also have a better chance there of finding the moon's declension. They traversed to the tower on the northwestern corner of the walls, where the observatory kept watch. It seemed as if they were the only souls in the world, they and whoever it was out there on the plain, travellers who'd stumbled into a ruined citadel. The observatory formed the top of the only circular tower on the walls, and it was circled by a balcony that jutted out over the northwestern corner. The king's astrologer was not a tidy man, and seemed to have resorted to working on the floor, since all the furniture in the room was covered with a mess of books and papers and various instruments of glass and brass. A platform rose under the centre of the dome of the observatory roof, perched on top of a cast-iron spiral stairway like a plate on a spring, and held a large telescope. Malleus picked his way across the floor to an assortment of smaller telescopes, while Solomus went rummaging for an almanac. Malleus took a telescope out onto the balcony and trained it on the figure in the distance. It was near enough to fill the shaking circle of the lens. It was almost certainly a woman, with her hair tied back and tucked into the hood of her gown, which seemed to be of a deep night blue. Solomus found an almanac but wasn't sure how to read it. Malleus suggested that they return to the court's room where someone would be able to help, but stopped by the gates to see if the guards had noticed the approaching stranger. In fact, they reached the guards at the same time as the stranger was knocking on the gate. She'd moved extremely quickly. One of the guards pulled a tiny shutter open and peered out at her. "'Who are you?' "'I'm a healer.' "'We don't admit healers any more.' "'The king is done with them,' shouted the guard." Now go away, unless you prefer the friendship of dungeon rats. I am sent from Ados Tristamina, the strange woman persisted. Then you will die, said the guard dispassionately. Wait, shouted Solomus, then turned to look at Malleus. This could be the moment. Malleus hesitated. 
Never mind fearing a conspiracy, he was about to become an unwilling participant in a conspiracy. But it seemed sure to happen. Something the boy said had stirred him. He felt as if his feet had begun to walk towards it in spite of his will, and it only had to catch up. He would be able to pull rank and overrule the guards if they had any respect for the way things were done at court, but it had to be done in a certain way. Let her in, he told the guard. These others will witness that it was a direct order from me to do so, and I'll be the only one to make friends with dungeon rats. The guard shook his head, but unlocked a small door in the gate, admitting the woman. She stood about the same height as Solomus. Her hair was mostly red but greying in places, and her face had perhaps been shone upon by some forty summers. Curiously dark blue eyes matched the colour of her cloak, and underneath it hung the folds of a vermilion dress. I am Aeolia. Take me to your king quickly, she implored. I may be too late. The little party rustled through the corridors, bent with serious haste. As they strode along, Solomus asked her to tell Malleus about the soil of Tristamina's kingdom because he didn't believe it. Most of what you've heard is probably true, she said, but added, there's a lot we don't know about the soil, though. Have you been buried? asked Solomus. Just my hands, for one night only, she replied. When they reached the courtroom, they found a small huddle of courtiers surrounding the throne and the rest of them standing awkwardly in the shadows. This is it. They've murdered him, thought Malleus. He pushed through the circle. The scattered bones crunched under his feet. The king was lying rigid, sideways across the arms of his throne with his back arched and his legs hanging down on one side of it. One nobleman was cradling his head. The others looked on in horror. He was not dead, but breathing heavily. His eyes were rolled back and his mouth gasped open in the throes of a fit. One of the physicians was fumbling to loosen the clothing around the king's neck. Each of the bystanders seemed to be withdrawn into their own anguish, watching helplessly, some quietly hoping each rattling exhalation would be his last, some with faces drawn taut as if they were watching an unpleasant execution, others just glazed over. The boy, Solomus, was right. The throne was as good as unoccupied in those moments. Any semblance of power or authority the king may have kept was petrifying inside his rigid body. There was no protocol. The only power in the room now resided in the weapons of the guards, who were temporarily without a leader. Malleus was thinking fast and saw this quickly. The walk on the walls, the strange visitor, had ignited his awareness and his will. It was important that the king and those around him remained in a stupid daze for a few more minutes, in which he could act. The fate of the kingdom was in the hands of those who were awake. Move back, he bellowed from his chest. Give the king space to breathe. The courtiers fell back. He waved for Solomus and Aeolia to come over with a guard. Aeolia took her gloves off and handed them to Solomus. Her hands looked unexpectedly rough but strangely beautiful. She placed one hand on the king's filthy forehead and waved the other over his body, palm down. Fuselus slumped back into the throne like a broken marionette released from the spasm, the whites of his eyes no longer showing. 
his breathing settled. He looked asleep. Aeolia became completely still above him. She held her hands over his chest and closed her eyes to see what they saw. The king seemed to her an awful knot of massed fibres, like a fishing net tangled beyond repair. Gently she pulled at one of the strands. Malleus saw her fingertips twitch in mid-air. She felt the fibres of the king's soul, unyielding like rusted cables, barnacled and calcified with death. Yet something was cocooned within them, as if the wrapping, the tangling and fusing of knots was only so much as the windings of a silkworm. The blood in her fingertips, coursing like the mercury of Ados, returned to her heart the memory of the night they had spent in the earth. How there had been something underneath them like a cool shell, which had softened as the moon rose, and how, as it seemed to completely dissolve, she'd felt energy leaching into her and flowing upwards, as if she conducted it into the air above her, lifting her mind's eye right up into the sky where she had floated in timeless bliss for hours until daylight. There must have still been something in there that was of Fuselus, the man he'd been, some cooling coal of his being. She needed to find it. Aeolia breathed in deeply and threw her head back. Moving her hands over Fuselus' body, she began to shape the air in front of her, drawing the ethereal parts of his soul into the space above the throne. Malleus and the others saw her make odd, inexplicable gestures in the air. The subtle parts of Fuselus' internal organs presented themselves to her, calcified, cracked and dusty, his heart shrunken like a fruit rotting on the tree, his lungs like empty wineskins. Almost by accident, her fingers brushed something that rang out, a jangling discord, a painful sound that tore through her. She traced with her fingers an arched shape, like the leading edge of a wing. Ah, yes, it was here, the very thing, a harp. She found the strings, twined with claw-like thorns. Those that sounded were out of tune even with themselves. She counted them. Ten. All unbroken. She smiled. The courtiers watched as she seemed to pull at invisible threads in the air in front of her. As she narrowed her eyes and tipped her head to listen, they heard nothing. Aeolia untangled each of the strings carefully from the sharp, creeping tendrils that snaked up them. Then she began to tune them one by one, sounding each against the other and tightening them across the frame until their intervals were clear and perfect. For several minutes she worked while the courtiers stood like a painted tableau, transfixed by the swirl of her sleeves and the intricate movements of her hands. Then it was done, and ten years of dying reversed on ten strings in a mere ten minutes. She laid the ethereal harp upon the king's chest and smoothed her hands back and forth over it until it was reabsorbed by his body. Fuselus let out a moan and then coughed suddenly and violently, jerking himself upright and doubling over on the throne. He coughed again and a fine red dust came from his mouth and hung in a cloud, shot through with streaks of light from a high window in the courtroom. He lifted his head and the courtier saw his face. 
ruddy beneath his grey beard, with eyes wide open and filled with the old fire. He took in the scene around him. "'Have I been gone for long?' he asked weakly. Ten years, sire,' said Malleus. Ten years!' The king chuckled. Then the king laughed, standing to his feet, and snapping upright like a longbow recoiling as the arrow flies from it. The years seemed to fall from him as his laughter bounced from the ceiling and broke over the courtiers. It brought them to life quite suddenly too, and the stones of that courtroom heard laughter and cheering for the first time in a decade of winter's shadow. Fuselus had returned in full strength, and in the hours that followed somehow food and drink would be found for celebration, and the king would hear how his kingdom had fared, not so well, although there would be hope again. Before he left to return home, Malleus went to see Fuselus to say goodbye. The king's majesty was restored, and he sat on a bright throne with all his robes in order, drawing the love of all in the room with him. Aeolia and Solomus were standing close to him, both unashamedly bearing the red cross of Tristamina's livery. "'I must thank you,' said Fuselus. "'Thank Aeolia and Solomus more,' said Malleus. "'Oh, I always will,' said Fuselus. "'Aeolia returns to Aedos Tristamina, and Solomus will go with her as my ambassador. "'They will travel with you, as you're all going in the same direction.' What has become of the previous ambassador? Malleus dared to ask. Aeolia held up a small pot in which a single snowdrop grew. We went to release him from the dungeons, and he was nowhere to be seen, she said. This was growing on the floor of his cell. I'm taking it home to plant in the soil of his homeland. He will prefer that. He will take root again in the gardens of Aedos Tristamina the thrice-buried.